From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. We've got a packed show today, primary elections, the Wilmington Housing Authority, and community violence. Later on in today's show, we'll have our reporters Kelly Kinoyer and Camille Mojica to help unpack the mold crisis and the community violence issue. But first up, let's talk elections. That's primary elections. Primary elections are crucial. Logistically, they narrow down the field in each party to the number of open seats on a board, like the Board of Education or the Board of Commissioners, or a single candidate for offices like sheriff or a state or congressional representative. But they also help steer the direction of a party, almost like a referendum on which voices in the party are resonating the most. So the vote in the primary can have a lasting effect beyond this election cycle. And yet, in spite of that, few people get involved, let alone legitimately excited, about the primary election. We've said it before, but voter turnout for local elections is almost universally low across the country. It's worse during midterm elections when there isn't a presidential contest on the ballot to get voters engaged. And when it comes to a primary election in a midterm year, well, it's downright abysmal. In the 2018 primary election, less than 10% of voters turned out. Less than 10%. We're hoping this year we can do better. And that starts with getting a sense of what this year's primary election will look like. To do that, I'm joined by our own Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Hey, Ben. And in a minute, we're going to get to, you know, why the primary election is important and how you can get involved, when to vote, all the important dates. So don't worry. But first, I just want to give everyone an overview of who are we voting for this May. So let's start with, at the top uh, of the ballot, the United States Senate. Yes. Richard Burr said that he is not running for re-election, so we have a lot of newcomers, and you might hear some of these uh, politicians, you've heard of them before. But for the U.S. Senate, for the Democratic side, we have Sherry Beasley. She is one of 11 Democratic candidates. She is the former NC Chief Supreme Court Justice. She had a narrow loss to Paul Newby um, for that seat, for her seat in 2020. And again, we have 11 candidates for the Democratic side, even Robert Colon. He's from Wilmington. He actually ran in a 2020 Democratic primary for House District 7 uh, to try to go against Rouser. And then on the Republican side, we have 14 candidates, and we have Pat McCrory. He is our former North Carolina governor. He, uh, we also have Ted Budd. Former President Trump endorsed Ted Budd. And then we also have Mark Walker and Marjorie Eastman that are emerging as the lead contenders for the Republican Party. Yeah, and some of you may remember uh, Jeff Jackson from the Charlotte area, was a contender. He has since stepped away. He's now actually running for the newly created 14th Congressional District here in North Carolina. But he has thrown his full weight and support behind Sherry Beasley for the Senate race. That's right. Um, Okay, so let's move on down uh, to House District 7. This is David Rouser's seat, uh, four-time congressman. We have seen many people challenge Rouser in the past from the Democratic Party uh, without much success. But this time around, Rouser has his own challenge in from the Republican Party. And I don't think this has happened since his first term. I think since he was primaried by Woody White okay. in 2014. So it's been a long time. Uh, so his challenger is Max Southworth Beckwith. He is a self-described constitutional libertarian. And so, as you might expect, a lot of his critiques are big government, government overreach, 
Um, he's, you know, critiqued Rouser for approving bills that had things like potential red flag laws in them or, you know, lifting government spending caps. So even though he agrees with Rouser on a lot of things, it, it seems to be that kind of establishment Republican government versus more of what we expect from kind of a Tea Party libertarian thing. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays in our very purple district. There aren't no libertarians in our in our region. So we'll have to see. On the Democratic side, uh, Steve Miller, who we've spoken to before, and uh, Yushanda Majet, I, th- I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Charles Evans and Charles Graham. And so we look forward to getting to know all these candidates too. We know this will be a tough fight. The U.S. Supreme Court just recently ruled this week that they will not be changing the congressional maps for North Carolina. So we kind of know what the map looks like. It's a little bit more competitive than it has been in the past. Don't know if that'll be enough to overcome Rouser's uh, momentum and war chest, but we will definitely see. Yeah, I guess pundits are saying that they're expected to see seven Republicans win the seat, six Democrats, and one competitive seat in the November race is what they're predicting. Yeah, and that's you know that was sort of at the heart of the redistricting lawsuit, which caused all kinds of issues. And if you've been following that story, you know it was really a roller coaster ride. But let's move a little bit more locally. For New Hanover County commissioners, we've got two open seats, and of course the primary's job is to narrow down the field to the number of people, uh, to the number of open seats. That is. So for the Democratic Party, we've got three candidates going for two seats, two incumbents: Rob Zappel, who is also a WHQR board member. Just disclosure notice. The current chair, Julia Olson Bozeman. And uh, Travis Robinson, who also ran in the primary in 2020. And then on the Republican side, we've got four candidates, no incumbents, um, but at least one very familiar name, Leanne Pierce, who was former council member and mayor of Carolina Beach, as well as uh, Harry Knight, who ran in 2020, and Tom Tomey and Joe Herrera, who also ran in 2020. And just to say a little bit about this race, because we'll have a lot more to come, mm-hmm. we know some of the big issues will be spending. We have already seen a number of sitting council, or sorry, commissioners talk about reducing taxes. There's still a lot of heartburn from last year's effective tax raise. Of course, other budget issues will be how the county continues to handle funding for the school system, how it handles public safety. That's basically the, the sheriff's office, which is its own independent office, but does get all its funding or the majority of its funding from the county. I think people will also be talking about how county leaders handle the affordable housing issue, whether they continue with the current plan on the table or whether they readdress the possibility of a bond, and how the county deals with the community violence issue that we've talked a lot about over the last year. So that'll be an interesting race again, just just two open seats. So it'll be it'll be tight on both sides. That's right. And again, those parties will send two for the county commission in yep. each party affiliation that you vote in. So we'll see four people in the in the general election. But that's not even close to the crowded field we're going to see for the Board of Education. That's right. So each party can send four in the to the November election. And we have five candidates for each party. So uh, we have a race for this primary. So we have for the Democratic side, we have Judy Justice and Nelson Bollier are the incumbents. We have newcomers Veronica McLaurin Brown. She has been in the media for her work with Love Our Children. That's an advocacy group that wants to end suspensions for four, five, and six, and seven year olds. She's also a former educator in the school system. She's also a candidate of color. We, as of now, there are there's no diversity per se on the Board of Education. Uh, we also have Jenna Bosch. She's a mother of children in the district. She seems like she cares about um, teacher retention and student mental health. 
we have Dorian Cromartie. He is the grandson of Rachel Freeman, who was a prominent former board member in New Hanover County Schools. One of our elementary schools is named after her. He's also a candidate of color. Um, and that rounds out our Democratic side. And we also have five for the Republicans, Pete Wildeboer. He is an incumbent, but he has to run for his seat again because what happened last time in 2020 is that he was appointed to his seat because Bill Rivenbark was elected to the county commission. So we have uh, Pete running again. We also have Melissa Mason. She teaches sign language at CFCC. We have Josie Barnhart. She's a mom of students in the district, and she's also a former teacher in Florida. Pat Bradford, she's also run for the Wrightsville Beach. Alderman was not successful. And then we also have uh, Chris Sutton. He became an activist after the stories broke about some teachers in the district sexually abusing students. Yeah, and this is going to be a contentious election. I mean, you know, the the Board of Commissioners is going to be tough, but this is going to be really tough. And I think one of the things um, we wanted to point out was that just because these are candidates running, you know, for one party. So really, it's not about, I mean, I'm sure there will be slings and arrows thrown, you know, from party to party, Democrats against Republicans, Republicans against Democrats. But really, these are Democrats competing against each other for the musical chairs, right? That's right. And we even see uh, Judy Judy Justice and Nelson Bullier, they've been on the board together, and they often disagree on pretty much every issue. It's it's very rare that they're on the same page. So there's a lot of diversity within each party of ideas. And I think the big issues are going to be the mask vaccine policies going forward. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion belonging initiatives have been a wedge issue. And we're starting to see school board races are part of this national conversation where uh, it drives people to the polls. We have uh, record numbers of coming to these school board meetings. Actually, all of the Republican candidates, I've seen them speak at the call to the audience. So you can go back and see who they are based on and what they stand for based on their comments during that period. So, yeah, 10 candidates in all, lots of contentious issues, and we'll be there to follow that. Yeah, yeah. I will also say that on the um, on the Republican side, uh, there is a local pack sort of uh, that is supporting some but not all of the candidates that has been more vocal about uh, mask mandates and uh, allegations that the school district is teaching um, critical race theory, where some of the candidates seem conservative candidates are less concerned about that, more concerned about fiscal responsibility, transparency and stuff like that. So lots of complicated issues that even within the parties, not everyone agrees on. So. And just as a side note and fact check, the school district does not teach critical race theory. Yes. And, you know, we'll be bringing that up in our interviews. I'm sure. Joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm host Ben Schockman talking with our reporter Rachel Keith about the 2022 primary election season. So moving on, because we got a lot more to get to, we've also got a runoff for sheriff. Uh, Again, this is a first in a long time. I believe it was 2014 since uh, current sheriff Ed McMahon was primaried by retired sheriff Sid Causey, came out of retirement to challenge Ed McMahon. Um, Since then, he's been the elected Democrat uh, candidate for sheriff. Um, This year, he's being challenged by Kelvin Hargrove, who's a retired uh, WPD officer, I believe he's captain. 
And I think the main issue here is going to be two different policing philosophies. Hargrove has been very emphatic about what's called community policing. Uh, this is the approach that WPD Police Chief Donnie Williams takes. And I think it's kind of demonstrably different from the more uh, what you might call old school law enforcement that Sheriff McMahon takes. Um, we've seen this. I mean, the clearest distillation of this difference, without going too far down this rabbit hole, was the way the two different law enforcement agencies handled the George Floyd protests in downtown Wilmington. We saw the Wilmington Police Department um, engage with protesters. There was conversations at one point. Uh, they took a, They famously took a knee in the streets. Um, there was, you know, a lot more just community engagement. Whereas the sheriff's office showed up in uh, full riot gear with tear gas dispensers and. And I'm not taking a side here. I mean, I'm just saying that these are very, this is very, the record. These are very different philosophies. Mm-hmm. And you'll see people who are, uh, you know, very much support one or support the other. Uh, but again, this is still the Democratic Party. So this has this comes down to where the will of the people is and where they want to take that that office. And whoever wins, of course, um, will face a Republican candidate, Matt Rhodes. Mm-hmm. So that is a wait and see. Also in Penner County, there's a uh, three Republican challengers for the sheriff, um, incumbent Alan Cutler, who came over to the sheriff's office from the uh, state highway patrol to take over for Carson Smith, who left to go to the state house, um, got tired of law enforcement, went into politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's being challenged by uh, Mike Sorg and Mike Korn. Um, and over in Brunswick County, John Ingram is running unopposed. That's right. Uh, as he has many times. Yes. Um, just a quick note, John Ingram actually changed his party affiliation back in the day. He was a Democrat, and uh, he became... A Republican. And that is in large part because in North Carolina, uh, offices of the sheriff and registers of deeds are what I sometimes call a political machine. So the leader, the register of deeds or the sheriff can actually require political loyalty of the people who work there. Mm-hmm. So to move up through the ranks, if the acting sheriff is a Democrat, often you'll see people change their party affiliation to Democrat. Ditto if they're a Republican, you'll see them change. So a lot of the times people will change their party affiliation to inherit the war chest and the basically you get the baton from the previous sheriff. Um, so not uncommon, actually, to see sheriffs switch parties. Wow. All right, so moving on, though. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Pender County and Brunswick County. Yeah, real briefly, we have a primary race for the Republican Party for uh, Pender County Commissioner in District 1. Um, we are not seeing incumbent David Williams is not running. So we have Jimmy Tate and Joe Sinna. For the commissioner race in Pender County, District 3, incumbent George Brown is being challenged challenged by Jerry Groves. And then in Brunswick County, let's move over to the commissioner race in District 2. Incumbent Marty Cook is being challenged by Art Dornfeld and David Robinson. Interestingly, David Robinson is a current uh, Board of uh, Ed member for in Brunswick County. So if he were to beat Marty Cook, he would likely win because there's no Democratic challenger in November for that district. So we would see a seat filled in Brunswick County Board of Ed. And then the Board of Education, District 3, Robin Moffitt is the incumbent. She is being challenged by Todd Coring. And then District 5 for the Board of Education, Republican Jerry Benton is not running for re-election. So we have three newcomers are running to take this seat, Randy Fennell, Steve Ganey, and William Woodburn. Yeah, and just a quick note here, if you're, if you're wondering what we're talking about when we say district, uh, Pender and Brunswick County have districted uh, county races. New Hanover County, in large part because of its small geographic area, does not. That's correct. And also, while we will be following all of these races to their conclusion on... Uh, 
general election day in November. While we expect a lot of tight races in New Hanover County, it is not uncommon for the GOP to sweep in Brunswick and Pender County. They are both very red counties. Yes, I looked up some of the district races, and yes, there is no Democratic challenger. So whoever wins that primary will win in November. So we look forward to getting to know all of these candidates and taking deeper dives into some of the issues that they'll be running on. Uh, But we want to do a little PSA now and talk about actually getting involved and voting in the upcoming primary election in May. So if you're a registered Republican or Democrat, you're going to vote again in your party's primary. Make sure that you're a registered voter. You can do this through the State Board of Elections site or find information through your County Board of Elections. And you can register now until April 22nd. But then you can also register to vote um, and vote on the same day during early voting, which for New Hanover County and Brunswick County is April 28th through May 14th. And again, this process lets you pick the candidates that are going to go to the general election. So if you're a Democrat, uh, you might have really strong feelings about, I think this candidate really is the best version of my party's politics. Or if you're in the GOP, same deal. Um, But what if you're unaffiliated and almost a third or more of New Hanover County is unaffiliated? What about about those folks? So this is really interesting. If you are an unaffiliated voter, you can show up to your precinct and vote in either the Democratic or Republican primary. Not both. Not both. Okay. You get to choose. Okay. You get to choose which one you vote for. And I I want to take this time to point out that the unaffiliated voter population has been growing in New Hanover County. It's it's been growing over the last couple of years, but this is a statewide phenomenon. Yes. Recent reporting out of member station WFAE in Charlotte shows that the number of unaffiliated voters is, like you said, Ben, is growing throughout the state. It's more than the Republicans registered in this state and 3,000 voters away from overtaking Democrats registered in the state. So let's listen to uh, political scientist Michael Bitzer of Catawba College on this phenomenon. Maybe they don't like the party labels. Maybe they want the kind of freedom to choose among the two different political parties' primaries. And perhaps they are looking for an alternative that the two political parties aren't giving them. And Bitzer goes on to say that this growing disillusionment with the parties is taking hold among young voters. But then he says also that they might be unaffiliated, but they definitely have a partisan lean and they are technically partisan voters. Absolutely. I mean, uh, in some cases, the unaffiliated are unaffiliated because they are further left or further right than the Democratic or Republican parties. I mean, we've certainly seen people leave the Democratic Party for liberal progressive green parties or socialist parties. We've seen uh, Republicans talk about leaving um, the, the party of Trump uh, to go even further right. You know, we've heard uh, rumors of something called the Patriot Party or, you know, back in the day there was the Tea Party, um, which is under the Republican Party. But there was a lot of conversation about making their own party. But the the political might and I say financial firepower 
of the two-party system makes that a little tricky, but at right. le- definitely at the local level, it's uh, it's an interesting part of the equation. Right. And in New Hanover County, I spoke with elections, Board of Elections Director Ray Hunter Havens. In 2021, New Hanover County, we had the largest percentage, our unaffiliated voters. And that's followed by uh, Republicans and then Democrats. And then we still have, you know, 1,400 voters are Libertarians compared to the roughly 69,000 thousand unaffiliated voters and then the democrat republican is about fifty thousand uh give or take all right well let's do it before we leave uh this segment because we've got to take a break in a minute let's do a quick rundown of important dates yes so for this primary election you can still request an absentee ballot you can start doing that on march 28th and you have to get that in by may 10th Again, early voting begins for New Hanover County and Brunswick County on April 28th. It finishes May 14th. When in doubt, if you have any type of election question about your registration, where you need to go, um, any other questions, please call or contact your Board of Elections office in your county. They will help you. And you can check your voter registration on the State Board of Elections website. The day, the big day, Rumble Day, is May 17th. We have our canvas, which means that's when the results are official, is May 27th. And then again, the big race is November 8th, election 2022, when we'll get these races ultimately decided. All right. And of course, stay tuned for a lot more coverage on these issues from Rachel Keith and the rest of the news team. Uh, we've got some hopefully some panel nights coming up. We've got a lot of exciting coverage this year for the 2022 primary elections. We haven't even gotten to the general elections yet. So we're very excited about all that. And of course, if there are things that you would like to know about the elections, questions you have for candidates, issues that will help define some of these races that you'd like us to take a closer look at, we want to hear from you. That's the kind of stuff that's going to help shape our coverage over the next couple months. So you can reach us at newsroom at whqr.org. And of course, all of our coverage will be on the website as well. Okay, time for a break. Uh, I know we'll have more on this topic, but for now, Rachel Keith, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Ben. Okay, well, after this break, we'll shift gears and dig into the latest on the Wilmington Housing Authority with reporter Kelly Knoyer. We'll get into the latest numbers, both in terms of financial cost and human cost of the mold crisis that has plagued the housing authority and discuss the elephant in the room, what a financial shortfall would mean for the victims of the crisis. Then later in the show, we'll turn to the community violence issue with reporter Camille Mojica. We'll talk about what community violence means, why public officials have recently been paying more attention to it, what the county is trying to do, and how some local advocates and community groups feel about those programs. That's all coming up on The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Since last year, we've been reporting on the worsening mold crisis at the Wilmington Housing Authority. The costs have risen, and more and more families have been pushed out of their homes. 
Just recently, WHA finally appeared in front of Wilmington City Council to update city leaders on the situation. That update was grim, and city leaders seemed both unconvinced at WHA's plan to deal with the problem and shocked at the severity of the crisis. But to that latter point, I gotta say, with all due respect, we've been reporting on the issue for almost six months, and this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Now, there's a specter of an even worse situation on the horizon. To help me unpack that, I'm joined now by WHQR investigative reporter Kelly Kinoyer. Kelly, thanks for being here. Always glad to be on the newsroom. Okay, I don't want to overstate this, but we're already in a crisis, and now we're headed over a cliff. But let me back up and catch people up a little bit if they haven't followed the story that closely. Yeah, so we started reporting on this last summer when we started hearing about these mold problems. I think it came out of the oral biography project that WHQR did in Creekwood with Kevin Maurer. He did a whole lot of reporting and engagement in the community, and that's when we started hearing about these mold problems. Yeah, it still took us a long time to actually report it out, though, um, mostly because we didn't have a lot of trust built up in the community. Yeah, Kevin helped a lot with that sourcing. But in the meantime, we started sending public records requests and got a sense that there was a really big problem with mold. We found contracts for mold remediation and some evidence that payments weren't always happening on time. Eventually, it came out that more than 80 families were living in hotels because of mold problems, and a lot of their possessions had been destroyed from sitting in pods in the parking lot. Right. And if you don't know what we're talking about, those are the like half shipping container looking things and they're not temperature controlled. They're basically just incubators for mold spores once summer comes around. Yeah, they did stop using those. But the problem as far as displacement goes is even worse. According to WHA's recent reports to city council, 155 families are now living in hotels. It's 476 people in total, including more than 300 kids. Oh, that is just it's awful. It is. You and I have both visited families living in these hotels, and it's really hard for them to make the best of it. One family I talked to had two rooms to call home between six people. They were all sleeping two to a bed, and the walls were stacked with possessions. I mean, how do you move your entire life into a hotel room for months while sharing it with so many people? That's got to be impossible. I mean, you talked to them back in November. How are they doing now? I just called this week, and they're still in that hotel. The mom, her name is Amber Bragg, she said next month will be a year anniversary from them moving in. I feel like they have abandoned us. Um, I feel like they feel because they're giving checks out to eat that that's enough, but you're not understanding it takes gas money to get to these places. These kids are without clothes, shoes, um, structure, quietness. This manager here at this hotel, he says... Oh, it's housing authority. It's not my problem. So he basically treats us like, I don't even know the word to explain. Second class citizens? Yeah, basically. Or he'll be like, um, y'all are housing authority. Y'all don't need housekeeping. Yeah, hotels are not good for long-term housing like this. I met with a mother in her hotel. She'd been pushed out of her home just months after giving birth, and her son was just becoming a toddler, and he'd barely like five or six square feet to move around to one of those little baby walkers. I mean, it was... It was tough to watch, and that's been his whole world for, like, going on a year now. It's very tough on kids, I have to imagine. And at the same time, kids are not popular with hotel management, and that's to say nothing of management for corporate uh, apartment units. Amber told me that her family was constantly being policed by the hotel manager. She said the hotel manager didn't want the family to spend time outside or in the hallways or anything because he considered it disruptive. She has kids ranging from age 3 to 16, so you can imagine that her 12-year-old wants some space from the toddler sometimes and some quiet time, but it's just not really an option. 
She's not the only resident who's told us about unfair treatment, by the way. Hotels have allegedly limited or refused to provide cleaning services in some instances, and some hotels are kicking out residents entirely ahead of tourist season. Yeah, we're not making this up. It really is a crisis. And it's not just a humanitarian crisis for the people stuck in these hotels. It's a financial disaster. Let me, let me try and break down some of the math. Right now, it's costing the housing authority at least $450,000 a month, and that number has been going up, both because the number of families being displaced has gone up from 80 when we first started reporting on this to over 100 in December to the latest estimate of over 150. And it's going up because hotel per diem costs are going up as we get into tourist season. Right now, they make up about a third of the average cost, but that's when hotels cost $50, $60, $70 a night. But when they cost up to $150 a night, that overall number is going to be a lot higher. So where is that money even coming from? So at first, it was WHA reappropriating its own funds, money it had set aside for capital projects, for example. But they're burning through that and fast. Now they're asking the federal government, the Housing and Urban Development, for $13 million to try and see them through the crisis. But even that is a guesstimate. At the recent city council meeting, Mayor Bill Sappho pushed back on that number because WHA is asking the city to lobby HUD on their behalf, and Sappho basically said he does not want to have to ask HUD for money twice. Some other officials I talked to seem concerned that $13 million just isn't enough, that it doesn't account for rising costs of hotels and apartments in the rare case where WHA can actually get a family into a corporate unit. It's also unclear if HUD even has that much money to release right now. During their presentation to the city, WHA admitted that HUD Greensboro, that's the regional office, has a bit more than $7 million in disbursable funding, but also $5 million in requests from other housing authorities. We're not the only housing authority in the state. So that's $2 million unspoken for against WHA's $13 million ask. Thus, Sappho's trip up to D.C. to try to go higher up on the ladder for this request. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm host Ben Schachman talking to reporter Kelly Kinoyer about the latest on the Wilmington Housing Authority. Wow. So financially, it looks bad. But there's something else here that I've been thinking and worrying about. Yeah, this is the really concerning part. So if WHA is running out of money and the hotels and motels are turning to higher paying tourists and corporate apartments refuse to consider leasing to families. And at the same time, WHA can't get enough contractors to repair these homes and get the families back in. I mean, what's going on here? We know WHA is trying to get some displaced people into housing choice voucher situations, you know, Section 8 housing. But that's relying on landlords to accept the vouchers, which they don't have to do and often don't do in a booming market like the one we have here, where it's way easier to rent out any given apartment without government hoops to jump through. So seriously, what is the other option? Yeah, look, we've said this before, but we haven't heard any other public official say it. The other option would be some kind of emergency housing. I've heard suggestions of FEMA trailers like the region saw after Hurricane Florence in 2018 or... And I hesitate to even say this. I know, I do too, but I think we have to say it. And we've heard it off the record from a couple public officials, but we might be looking at tent cities. If there's no place for people to go, they end up in the streets. I've talked about this before being from Oregon, but the housing crisis is no joke. Ordinary people, working people end up homeless. And in this case, we can definitively say it's because of government failures. Yikes. So 10 cities, what is that like? I mean, I haven't seen them in Wilmington here, not yet, but 
they're a fact of life back home for us. Um, every underpass is a shelter with dozens of people living in tents. You see them in the medians of the highway, impromptu shelters by the river, filling public parks to the brim. I mean, it's just a human tragedy on an incomprehensible scale, all because there isn't enough housing for everybody. And I know I harp on the housing crisis a lot, but that is what's coming to Wilmington if we don't get a handle on affordability. And I think it's really clear now who the first victims of it are going to be. Those unfortunate residents of the housing authority who've been ousted by mold spores. Okay, I wish we had a little light at the end of the tunnel moment here, because we honestly do prefer solutions journalism to just pointing out a crisis or a problem. So help me out, Kelly. Okay, yes. Uh, So solutions at this point would require a lot of creativity. Coming from the West Coast, there are some really creative solutions that have come up for addressing homelessness. One example, cities or states buying older hotels and converting them into housing. We've already seen a business doing that here in town, and I believe they're still in the remodeling phase. But there's nothing saying a city or county couldn't buy a hotel to house people for a while and convert rooms into something more reasonable for the long term. California has started a program called HomeKey that does just that, and Oregon, King County, Washington, and Austin, Texas have all followed suit. You know, that might actually work. With under 200 families currently displaced, uh, one or two hotels should just about cover at least the current emergency. And it would have to be a lot cheaper in the long run than charging a nightly rate for every family for months. Yeah, it would cover the current need. California didn't do it until the situation was already desperate, and their hotels barely make a dent. But we are just at the beginning of a crisis here. With enough political will, the community could act before it's truly too late and too overwhelming to deal with this problem. Where there's a will, there's a way. At least that's what people say. We're going to have to stay on the story and see what happens. But for now, Kelly, thanks for being here. Happy to do it. Okay. Well, we've got to take a break. But when we come back, WHQR's Camille Mojica joins us to talk about community violence. We'll dig into what people mean when they say community violence, why there's been more attention on the issue recently, and how some local advocates and community groups feel about the problem. All that coming up after the break, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Since last August, there's been a lot of talk about community violence in New Hanover County. This follows a shooting at New Hanover High School. Almost immediately after the shooting, the Board of Education and Board of Commissioners got together, and County Chairwoman Julia Osen bozeman pledged to tap into the county's deep financial reserves to help address the issue. More recently, we've been looking at the county's efforts to actually put that plan into motion. 
And at the same time, we've been looking at what community advocates and organizations have been doing about this issue, some of them for a lot longer than the county has been involved. Our reporter Camille Mojica has tackled this issue from a lot of different angles, and we'll have links to all of her reporting on the show page. But we thought it would be good to sort of put it all together for a conversation about community violence. So I'm joined now by WHQR's own Camille Mojica. Cami, thanks for being with us. Sure thing. Okay. So since last summer, we've been talking about what gets called community violence and different responses to it. You've been reporting on this story from a lot of different angles. So to start, let's talk about where the recent attention to this problem came from. Last August, there was a shooting at New Hanover High. So there was a disagreement between kids and one of them pulled a gun and shot the other. No one was killed, but the injured kid and the shooter's lives are forever changed. Yeah, that story got complicated fast. Uh, The parents of the shooter claimed that he had been bullied, and the more we looked at it, the more this kind of problem seemed to pull in a lot of other issues. And along those lines, a lot of people you've spoken to, from elected officials to advocates, have a broader and deeper definition of community violence than maybe we've heard in the past. So what are some of the things that you've heard uh, about what this problem really is? Well, it's more complicated than a simple pin the tail on the donkey. Almost everyone I've spoken to says it comes down to inequality and lack of access to opportunities. So things like food insecurity, housing insecurity, lack of socioeconomic mobility, uh, quality of education, stability in the home. And all of these things work together like cogs in a watch. If we want to get deeper, we can ask ourselves, why are these things present in these communities? What do the people in these communities look like? And the answers are there, too. While we might not like to admit it, these issues are more present in black and brown communities. It's hundreds of years of prejudice and policy that were built around making sure these people didn't succeed and we're seeing the effects of it now. So I totally understand where people are coming from when they ask things like, why is it these people in particular are suffering so much? But again, it's not like the answer isn't there. Yes, personal responsibility plays a big role in this conversation, but right now we're focusing on the structural institutions in place. You had a chance to sit down with Chief District Judge Jay Corporating, who's worked with juvenile justice for a long time. What did he tell you about this? Judge Corporating put it pretty well. Root, root causes are marginalized populations of our society that have been marginalized for years. Um, and that's systemic, right? So we have a, a large segment of our community that lives in poverty uh, that you know, some don't know where the next meal is coming from, or mom works two jobs to keep roof over the heads, lights on, but mom's never home. Um, so poverty, unmet needs. Um, I think that systemic racism is a role. Um, we've seen how that has had an impact over hundreds of years in this community, right? Uh, and so I think that that now we're in a sort of a perfect storm where so many of those things are coming together with a pandemic where all of a sudden young people don't have another path except the ones that some older kids are guiding them down. Uh, and uh, and they're, they're easy fodder. Okay, so let's talk about New Hanover County's plan to address this issue. Uh, This is a model that some other cities and counties have used, sometimes called violence disruption, and you've spent a lot of time looking at this. Yeah, so Port City United was announced on February 2nd this year. 
It's going to fall under Assistant County Manager Tafana Bradley, and it's new Hanover County's version of the Bull City United initiative that's up in Durham. So right now, about $40 million has been allocated to the people-first aspect of the initiative. This includes things like a community call center and resource coordinators that will help put people in touch with services they need. This initiative focuses on both preventing as well as intervening in, in violence. Listeners can look back at my other reporting to see how the Community Violence Action Plan has evolved, along with dollar amounts being pledged to each aspect. But there's still the other half of this plan that needs to be addressed, and that's the, quote, hardscaping of schools, in county manager Chris Goudre's words. And we definitely still have some reporting to do on the hardscaping side of things. But I want to shift a little bit and talk about the programs the county already has that were up and running before Port City United. You spoke to some of the people who help run those programs about their work. Yeah, I spoke with Teresa Huffman and Jamie Roten with Too Good for Violence, which falls under the Youth Empowerment Services Division in New Hanover County. Teresa works with elementary students in the schools providing a foundation. So she helps teach them skills on how to manage and communicate negative emotions rather than resorting to violence to solve the conflict. Attack the problem, not the person, was something she said that really struck with me. She and Jamie come together when a child from her program might be referred to Jamie and his team. Case managers meet with the child and their entire family to determine what services are needed and they get to work from there. Jamie's team also helps divert children from the justice system with programs to supplement community service sentences. We also have a community service and restitution program, so we provide community service for all kids coming through juvenile court and youth who are diverted. So they do a, they have a partnership with Cape Fear Community College doing a job skills program, connected youth to faith-based organizations in the community, lots of nonprofit work. And then we also have juvenile psychological services. They provide um, outpatient counseling, home-based family counseling, and then clinical assessments for youth who are coming through juvenile court as well. And all those programs are free of charge to all the families. So they're doing a lot of great, really important work already, and it's proving to be successful. Teresa and Jamie gave me some numbers, and here's what they found. Um, one of the other components of that, Jamie will probably speak to it, is we look at the recidivism rate. And what that is, is we look at post one year, that after we have served them, have they gotten involved in the legal system? And that rate has reduced tremendously. I think we're down to maybe 5%. And that's been over time now each year. Mm. Yeah, and it has, it, at one point it was at 5%, it's been even lower. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear from fiscal year 1617 through fiscal year 2021, um, we served an average of 240 middle school youth per year with our prevention services. And over that five-year or six-year frame, there were only um, 1.3% of youth who completed Teresa's program and became involved in the juvenile justice system. So that's a rate of about 1.3%. So very successful. You also talked to community advocates. These are people who don't work for the county, but run or work for their own organizations. And I think one of the things you told me that you've heard was that this is not, like, definitely not a new problem. Yeah, I spoke to Frankie Roberts, and his biggest thing was basically, where have you guys been? Uh, Community violence has been an issue plaguing his community for a long time, but no one really seemed to bat an eye. We talked about this, you and I, how these issues are covered as one-time crime stories, and that's that. There's no broader conversation about what seems to be the root causes of this issue. Yeah, that's Frankie Roberts, who's the executive director of LINK here in New Hanover County. And... When we were talking about this in the newsroom, you said Roberts had a pretty clear idea about why there's been so much recent attention from public officials on this issue. He said it had to do with the school shooting. And one person said, well, Frank, why was you offended that they threw the the checkbook at this issue? 
I say because they threw the checkbook at this issue because white kids was in close proximity of that violence. Then it became a terrible thing. But I've been, yeah, we've been complaining about this all the time. And nobody offered at that level $50 million. And I got to say, Frankie Roberts is not the only one who feels that way. At the end of last year, I interviewed True Colors founder George Taylor. He deals with a lot of community violence issues himself, and he was also pretty candid about the issue. There's a sense in our community that violence is up in 2021. In fact, you, you can talk to politicians and they'll tell you this is one of the most violent years ever. No. Total bull****. Um, what has happened, like, last year was way worse and the year before that was worse again. And, like, it's getting better. What we're doing is working. Um, the only thing that changed is that we had incidents in communities that didn't normally get them. We had an incident in a white middle-class community, upper-middle-class community, and we had an incident at New Hanover High School that has a lot of white students. That is the only thing that changed. Um, I talked to people in the hood, and they're like, are you kidding me? This has been going on for decades. So certainly other people felt that the county, while it has good intentions, is somewhat late to this party. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm host Ben Schachman, speaking with reporter Camille Mojica about community violence. Okay, so before you go, I want to get one more perspective that you've covered on this issue. You also talked to some folks at Sokoto House. So tell me a little bit first about who that is. So Sokoto House is located here in downtown. It's home to what they call the community health worker, which is essentially a frontline public health worker with strong ties to the community they serve. So that's the whole model of Sokoto House. Strong community ties, which builds trust, which builds the ability to actually go into the community and serve it. And what was their take on sort of the root causes of community violence? Well, I talked to Abdul Hafid bin Abdullah, the executive director of Sokoto House, and here's some of the issues he identified. Poverty, right? Lack of access to proper foods, right? Lack of access to built environments where individuals can go out and be able to enjoy themselves and have exercise. Lack of access to, um, like, health services, right? I'm saying equitable health services, right? So those are some of the things that they're working on dealing with at, like, the community level, right? Yeah, they hold open markets where community members can basically shop for free. And they try to keep track of who needs what and what kinds of support they could use. So how did the Sakota House folks feel about Port City United, uh, about the county's approach to community violence? Well, they're less happy with Port City United. Abdullah said that Sakota House is already doing the work that Port City United is aiming to do. Um, And Abdullah said his community health workers have built a strong relationship with the community, uh, one that the county doesn't have yet. Okay, so something we talked about in the newsroom that I wanted to dig a little deeper into is a concern about the community call line. Um, This is sort of a a hotline for community issues? Sort of, yeah. The community call line is actually taking up the bulk of the funding New Hanover County is putting towards community violence. Um, It is a call line for people to reach out with issues. And one of the things about it the county has highlighted is that it's not the police. Right, because if you call 911, you get the county's emergency line. But if you say, for example, that there's an unsheltered person having a mental health issue, there's a good chance that a police officer or a sheriff's deputy will be dispatched. Basically, 
For a lot of issues, if you call 911, a cop shows up. And with a community hotline, this is not the case. That's how the county has described it? Yeah. So they could send a community health worker or someone else and fine-tune the response instead of sending law enforcement. Okay, so that part sounds good, actually. Uh, We certainly know law enforcement isn't always the best fit for dealing with mental health issues. I mean, we've even spoken to cops who don't feel like they have the training to handle it. We know there are limited resources that police have to call on for mental health issues. And we've definitely heard from community advocates who don't like the law of the hammer approach that police sometimes seem to take. But some of the people you spoke with also had issues with this community hotline. Can you unpack those a little? Yeah, so Abdullah's big concern is the database that the call center will be building. He's told me he doesn't think the community actually understands what the call center will do, and that is to store data, including information on community members. So if someone calls with a tip that a student in a school might be affiliated with a gang, it's not clear who's keeping that info or how it would impact people down the line. And this is an issue we'll be looking more at in the future, but I can say that this general concern was a main reason Abdullah said Sakoto House removed itself from the conversations with the county. Right. And we should add here that the county says it's committed to working with community partners. The county has met with a number of organizations, including Sakoto House, and asked them to submit proposals. So there's definitely going to be some difference of opinion, but we should say that the county says they are trying to have that dialogue. And when I spoke to Zafana Bradley, the assistant county manager who's running Port City United, she was clear the program won't be able to do the job alone without community buy-in. So I guess that's one to watch to see how that actually plays out. Exactly. Okay. Well, if listeners want to hear more from Abdullah, we'll have links to your recent reporting and your conversation with him. Again, some interesting perspectives on this issue. And this is obviously an ongoing thing, so I'm sure we'll hear more from you on this topic. But for now, Kami Mohika, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. I want to thank the WHQR news team members who joined us today, Rachel Keith, Kelly Kinoyer, and Camille Mojica. Thanks also to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast. Pretty much everywhere you can get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, Email us at newsroom at whqr.org. We'll be heavy into election coverage for the next two months, but that doesn't mean we won't be working on other shows in the background. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.